1: Just to begin, if I think we all are familiar with your work, but if you.
0: Sorry, I, I have a job yeah. sometimes. Uh, no please. problem. Yeah.
1: No problem. Um, so, yeah, if, if you would like to introduce yourself and introduce your work, um, go ahead.
0: Okay. Well, uh, my name is Adhika Desai. I teach political uh, studies at the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba. Uh, I'm originally from India where I did my undergraduate degree. And uh, since then, I have uh, I studied at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario in Canada, and then taught at the University of Victoria for many years before coming to the University of Manitoba. Um, and my work has been on a number of different fields. I've uh, done a lot of work. I began as a comparativist in political studies, so I did comparative politics. I wrote about British politics and Indian politics, and then but because we were always taught politics in a way that political economy mattered, so I also, and my own interests, are also, I, I minored in economics, and I was, and, and I also, um, as an undergraduate, I, I I began to learn Marxism, and I got more and more interested in it. And so as I did that, and I studied political economy and, 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 and Marxism, and so on, more and more my work has shifted in the direction of Political economy, both comparative national political economy and international political economy, and that's the context in which I ended up writing my book, geopolitical economy. So, from from a very early stage, like right right from the start, I was always somebody who could never understand why everybody and their dog started talking about globalization in the mid nineteen nineties, and so I. Um, I originally, I began to produce several pieces of writing in which I criticized the concept and eventually it sort of rolled on, you know, be snowballed into a book. And when I started writing the book, I thought that I was going to use hegemony theory, theories of hegemony, like including world systems theory and so on, but there's a whole group of theories, uh, hegemony stability theories. And I thought I would use those theories to criticize the notion of globalization saying that, you know. Uh, Globalization is just a phase in the decline of American power, etc. But then I realized that hegemony theories also really did not stand up to the evidence. So in the end, geopolitical economy became a critique of all cosmopolitan theories. And it, it began, it sort of sought to underline the centrality of nation states in capitalism, uh, and, you know, and and, and because there is, in fact, I see there is a formative relationship between nation states and capitalism, and this will persist for a considerable time uh, in the building of socialism as well, should we come to that propitious moment, uh, uh, and then, and then it will fade away as socialist relations really develop within and between societies. Hmm. So, uh, do you want to? Do you want me to continue, or do you want me to? Do you want to ask questions?
1: Well, I think. Uh, I think basically the way we can do it, if it's okay with everyone, is we can just rotate between uh, the four of us. Um, so I can just start with a simple one because I I'm more interested in just in just hearing from you. But uh, I think we all started learning about your work through, or at least like Max introduced me to the work uh, of the of the Manifesto Group first and. the the recent statement about pluriparality uh, to socialism. So I'm I'm curious about how this idea of of pluriparality has expanded since even the writing of that document. Um, With everything that's happening in the world right now, um, it, it seems like there's a challenge to US dollar hegemony right now, but it's difficult to know what to make of it. So I'm curious about how the theory of pluriparality is evolving even now as we speak.
0: Right, okay. So, first of all, let me say that, uh, I mean, in a sense, what we designate as pluripolarity, other people designate as multipolarity but the mm-hmm. idea we feel that pluripolarity is a better idea by the way that term comes from Hugo Chavez like in mm-hmm. in geopolitical economy for those of you who've read the book will see I use the term multipolarity in fact the final chapter is entitled the multipolar future and then uh, I had the good fortune uh, many years later to visit Venezuela for the first time and as I was discussing some of these ideas of my book with certain intellectuals that they said you know Hugo Chavez used the term Pluripolarity, mm. and so and then the idea is that there are different types of capitalisms, you know, and there are different types of socialisms. So, in a certain sense, you don't just have a multi multiple poles of power, but each of these poles of power is also different. So, you have a plurality of political systems and economic systems in the world. Um, obviously, the idea of pluripolarity, multipolarity, is deeply connected with my analysis of imperialism, and so essentially. Uh, I would say that um, my critique of ideas of globalization, hegemony, etc., is roughly as follows that, you know, um, these are cosmopolitan uh, conceptions of, of, of the world order, which are very convenient to imperialism, because they portray the world economy as something that either is or should be a seamless world economy, either governed by markets alone, as in globalization theory, or governed by a single state, as in hegemony theory. But, but one way or the other, the world as a whole is a is, is seamless, like it's a seamless world economy. And this serves imperialist interest because what does imperialism really want? What imperialism wants is to open up economies to the, uh, to the for their corporations and for their capital to access and for their their economies to access the cheap, uh, our resources and the cheap labor from these economies. So all of these elements are important, but the critical thing is that the subordinated economy should be open. So that's also why, for example, many, some of the Indian writers that I follow, particularly Prabhatan Sapatnayak, et cetera, emphasize that colonialism entailed one way free trade. Free in India, for instance, vis-a-vis Britain had to be completely free trade. But Britain could Mm. practice whatever sort of protectionism it wanted for its own interests, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So anyway, the idea is that instead of these, uh, so these are not descriptions of the world economy, these are ideologies that animate imperialist actions in the world economy. So how do you then describe the reality of world economy? The reality of the world economy is that because capitalism is contradictory it uh, it is expansionist and as it is expansionist it elicits anti imperialist resistance it, it 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 instigates it, it causes anti imperialist resistance at least in those countries that can um that can engage in it and that are able and willing to do it the two do not always come together you can have countries ruled by comprador elites who have no interest in challenging imperialism they are doing very fine out of imperialism thank you so they don't want to change anything and and you can also have an attempt to try to challenge imperialism but you don't have the capacity so there are you know there's there are a lot of things have to come together but they have come together sufficiently that from the beginnings of capitalism uh, you've had challenges to the dominance of the centers of capital accumulation. So initially you had British dominance and then the Germans and the Japanese and the, and the Americans for that matter, the United States, I like, I prefer to say uh, reacted to that by engaging in protectionist combined development. So anyway, this is also my sort of operationalization of Trotsky's idea of uneven and combined development because it's really quite badly misunderstood and very often it's made compatible with these cosmopolitan notions of um, of, uh, of the world order, including by Marxists, because I, I feel that uh, unfortunately a lot of Marxists have ended up swallowing either globalization or empire in one version or another, uh, a cosmopolitan idea. So uh, I, 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 I so, so I argue that. States are central, states are central because capitalisms are contradictory, they they have to be states to manage these contradictions, otherwise where would capitalism be? Capitalism would have died a long time ago. So states Mm -hmm. are also responsible for the longevity of capitalism, a point that becomes really important for our time now. A few other things I will say. Uh, Firstly, that, you know, I also build geopolitical economy out of an understanding of Marx and Engels' original work, because it is very fashionable to argue that, you know, people read sort of the first chapter of the manifesto in which the bourgeoisie is lionized, you know, and the bourgeoisie creates a world after its own image and blah, blah, and Mm -hmm. so on. And then they say, well, you see Marx, Marx thought capitalism was global, that it creates a seamless world economy. But actually, even if you just read the rest of the chapters of the manifesto, you will realize that that's not what he's saying. Marx mm-hmm. realizes very well that capitalism and the nation state have a formative bond. That therefore, uh, you know, even in the manifesto, he says things like the working class of every country has to settle affairs with own bourgeoisie, blah, blah, mm-hmm. etc. Um, so anyway, I mean, I show in a number of different ways, both in terms of the way in which Marx analyzes capital, uh, in capital, the three volumes of capital, and then also in terms of what he says in other writings, whether it's writings about India, writings about pre-capitalist social formations, etc., that states are central. You absolutely need so so state, and so then once you accept this idea that states are central, then inevitably the some notion of uneven and combined development emerges that 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 really ends up um, that really is about the dynamics of international relations in a world. That is uh, uh, that is at least dominated by capitalist societies. Okay, so uneven and combined development becomes central. And to me, I interpret combined development to mean state directed, uh, 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 state directed, whether it is an elite state or a socialist state, but a state directed attempts to build up the economy in a way that it is able to withstand imperialist pressures that may even catch up with imperial uh, countries etc cetera, et cetera, without itself being imperialist so it's not I don't give in to this idea that you know the Soviet Union was imperialist or China was imperialist or is imperialist etc so um so so that that follows that and then what follows very simply is a uh, a, a second idea, which is that while, of course, being the first industrializer, the, Britain was for a time the most competitive country in the world. It was the workshop of the world. It dominated the world economy. So British dominance was inevitable. But American dominance, in the, uh, well, American dominance was impossible. And the Americans kind of acknowledged that by, you know, by saying that they 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 didn't want to create a territorial empire the size of Britain. They would they would be happy so long as the dollar was the world's money but of course what they forgot is that the only reason why sterling could be the world's money when it was was because britain presided over an empire and uh, so without an empire how could you have and so essentially what geopolitical economy does you know apart from setting up the scene in the way that i do uh, just now it sort of shows that that this self established aim uh, established by American elites, business elites, policy-making elites, of essentially uh, making the dollar the world's money, never succeeded. And today, I mean, it appears to succeed, but what has happened since '71 is it has required one after another a whole series of financial asset bubbles, uh, and you know we are at, of course, at the crest of our new one right now. We we saw off two, uh, the 2002. Uh, you know, the, 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 the dot com bubble, the, and there were others before that, uh, the housing and credit bubble. And now we have, of course, other stock market and other asset bubbles that are going to burst at some point. The question is when? Uh, when will the Federal Reserve's tightening of monetary policy uh, be so excessive as to trigger that collapse? So that's something we would like to see. And then the final idea was that, therefore, Globalization, empire, these were just the ideologies that articulated, but you, the idea of US hegemony itself, and then the idea of global, which emerged in the 70s. Globalization and empire, these are just ideologies of American attempts to retain whatever purchase it had. It was never a good hold, it was never properly established dominance in any stable fashion. But it was an attempt to try to create and recreate it. And what we are seeing right now, I mean, you know, with one you know, you may, we may discuss forever till the cows come home, as we like to say in India, what, what is happening in Ukraine. But one of the things that's definitely happening is that the United States is conducting a war against Russia, a hybrid war, but against Russia over Ukraine. So Ukraine here is a point. Right? It's, and, and it has led, of course, to terrible suffering in Ukraine, but Ukraine here is a problem, right? And uh, so, 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 and, and that, the purpose of that is as well, to essentially to, basically what the United States has been involved in in the new century uh, is essentially efforts to punish all those governments. The United States loves to, the US loves to use the term regime, As though regime were a bad word, but regime just means a certain form of rule, right? Anyway, these regimes uh, that stand up to the United States, that say, you know what, we just like to manage our own affairs as we like, thank you, not as you dictate, thank you. And this is where people get, you know, run over. So this is what happens to the uh, 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 the Iraq or Libya or Syria. And now we have, of course, and Venezuela, of course, and Cuba, of course, and so on and so forth. So um, yeah, I mean, does that
1: help? That was very helpful. That was very. Uh, it was a very illustrative answer um, and very thought provoking as well. So thank you, um, I Chris. I guess if you want to go next, and then and then we can do Max, Monica, and and circle that way. Uh,
2: yeah. Uh, again, thank you for the explanation. Um, I had a question. So you've mentioned that, uh, you know. Is that like, combined development and all and anti-imperialist movements have always existed in challenge to imperialist capitalism. And then you've and then in your article um, about polarity. You mentioned that um, we should we should give support or critical support to uh, to groups or regimes such as um, in Yemen or the Iranian regime. And now with Russia over Ukraine and even though those are examples of you know of challenges to American imperialism for me you know like um as a socialist or as marxist it's it's very hard to, to like reconcile our image of like an, an egalitarian world with a religious political project or with a another capitalist country so for me it's it's my question is you know like how 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 is um how is a world that's multipolar but not socialist? How, is, how does that open the way towards a socialist future? So that, that, that was a question.
0: Yeah, no, that's an absolutely fantastic question. Thank you. And it's a very serious question, I should say. So uh, so I'm going to answer it the best I can, but if I miss something, feel free to come back and, uh, with a follow-up. So obviously, you know, uh, I, I also, you know, I've come to this position after a lot of thinking and and, and and struggle in my own mind, because obviously, you know, as a woman, like, you know, do I want to be part, you know, like, obviously I have some 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 difficulty with the idea of a theocratic regime, et cetera, et cetera. So in all of these ways, uh, I do understand the difficulty of posing, but here's what I would say. I think the first thing is that, you know, Okay, let me let me roll back. The big pro- the re- reason why we make that point in uh, in the manifesto, which by the way, it of course it contains many of the ideas I have, but it contains many other ideas as well. And it's a collectively written uh, document. that took uh, 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 through pluripolarity, to, to socialism. It's a collectively written document. Now, uh, for us, what we feel is that the one of the big mistakes the Western left makes is that in condemning the dictatorial regime here and the tyrannical regime there and the theocratic regime there, we become accomplices in imperialism because the imperialism today takes the form of a defense of so-called human rights and democracy. Uh, So of course that is the rhetoric. In reality, what is defended, if anything is, is uh, uh, is the right of certain elites to run neoliberal economies in their countries so so i think that that's uh, the, so the first thing to do is to not participate in that you know like uh, so right now for example that logic has led to a whole lot of so called peace demonstrations to turn into war demonstrations people are saying where is the no fly zone over ukraine etc so i think that first of all we should say that we do not uh, uh, arrogate to ourselves the right to condemn these regimes our Anti-imperialism begins at home. Let's criticize what our governments are doing. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is that nobody nobody is asking, look, you and I are not going to emancipate all the women of Iran between ourselves, okay? So in that case, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to engage with a country like Iran on all those things that you, you want your government to engage in Iran, on all those things that help ordinary people in Iran. And you are, of course, welcome to establish relations of solidarity with those groups in Iran that you like, et cetera. That's also fine. The point is not to be accomplices of imperialism and also to see at the end of the day, no matter what you say about the Iranian revolution, it was an anti-imperialist revolution and it retains in many ways the coloration of anti-imperialist revolutions. And I should also say having begun with the point of you know being a woman and how I relate to the Iranian revolution, I, 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 sh- I would be remiss if I also did not underline that in, while of course women are not in positions of power in Iran, etc, women do participate in the life of the country in a lot in a far greater way than we imagine. And many of the human development indices as far as they concern women, the gender uh, women uh, human development indices, whether it's about uh, education, birth rates, participation in the labor force, etc, are actually quite high for women in Iran. So all of these things have to be kept in mind before one can. And remember also that for the last uh, however many decades, the, whatever has happened in the in, uh, in Iran has been under the uh, the pressure of unrelenting American sanctions, which is essentially a form of war, unrelenting American sanctions of one sort or another. So uh, if if this, this this answer does not uh, is does, quite
2: satisfy you please feel free to come back with a follow-up. Yeah thank you yeah just like my again like like what my reservations are you know about like how at least in the case of Iran or in the case of political Islam in general the struggle is usually on the cultural front because again like when like when an Islamist party comes into power whether it's in the Middle East, or in in Africa, it doesn't, while the rhetoric is to be anti-imperialist, you know, anti-Western, the reality is that nothing particularly changes, except on the social, on the cultural front, so, for me, you know, um, seeing, I mean, I I can, I I understand that, you know, those countries are currently under Mm -hmm. sanctions, you know, and, yes. Mm -hmm.
0: yes,
2: yes, I mean, it's just quite difficult for me to reconcile. Sorry, to recon-
0: equally oppressive Islamist regimes
2: are not. Yeah, yeah, like you know Saudi Arabia and all that. So, just it'd be difficult for me to reconcile, like you know, like um, a political, a religious project with political ambitions and the image of what Marxism is supposed to be. So, yeah. mm-hmm
0: no i agree and and i think that's why it's it's important to look at history and history is always considerably more messy than the neat uh, theoretical categories will allow so as it happens in the circumstances of uh, of the 20th century of the late 20th century uh, a revolution that occurred in iran on which the left was unable to keep its uh, keep its control and to, to which the left was not able to provide leadership was overtaken by Islamists, yes, but in many ways, even the Islamists had to adapt to a significant extent to the revolutionary energies that had been released. And it was definitely an anti-imperialist revolution because the Shah's government was definitely a government that was a puppet regime of the United States doing the bidding of the United States, etc. So you have to put it in that larger context is what I'm saying. And I agree, by the way, you know, if I was a citizen of an African country where there were, you know, all sorts of Islamists running Around saying you know uh, we are going to be anti-imperialist, but in fact doing nothing more than oppressing women or gay people or whatever, I would call it out by all means. You know it's important, and then and then you have to find a way, you know how are you going to mobilize the people that have been mobilized by that current which you do not approve of? How are you going to appeal to those people? That's that becomes our responsibility.
3: Thank you.
4: So I guess I'm uh, next up. I don't like want to steer this conversation uh, entirely into the uh, situation in Ukraine, which like as you said, we could talk about forever. But I would like to get your thoughts about how the Russian military operation or invasion or whatever you want to call it uh, changes like the chessboard for global imperialism. In particular, like I know that there's been a lot of talk regarding how the outbreak of hostilities between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, seems to have strength in the NATO that was beginning to uh, burst at the seams a little bit. I think Monica, who's been involved in some of the student debates regarding Danish membership in NATO, can speak to this maybe. Um, and great powers like the US, France, Germany, which have different interests and then were per- going in different directions to pursue those interests, uh, are like putting aside the differences to present an imperialist, united front against Russia. And uh, I was wondering do you think this is the case? Is this uh, a moment for imperialist countries to to create real unity, or is this unity that uh, seems to have formed uh, more thin than we than we realize?
0: Right. So uh, that's okay. So I would say first of all, I mean, I'm glad you brought up NATO in particular. So you. Uh, so number one, uh, I certainly think that the current conflict that is occurring. In Ukraine, over Ukraine is what I prefer to say. Uh, it it's, it has very profound implications uh, if it if it pans out. Particularly, okay, so it has very profound implications. I think that actually, ironically, although Boris Johnson says things like you know President you know Putin wants to redraw the map of Europe in blood, etc., all this wonderful, uh, all this rather shall we say not wonderful but macabre uh, uh, rhetoric. I think that uh, uh, he, that's what he says, but ironically if putin's aims were to be fulfilled the aims of what what is called his military operations were to be fulfilled it would actually take europe back to the point where it was before all the provocations of the united states began back last fall okay and and uh, so what do i mean by that it would because what, what does what the new, uh, what is russia always wanted it has wanted to implement the minsk accords um, uh, 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 you know, don't put NATO into Ukraine and create an a European security settlement. Look, any security settlement in Europe cannot ignore Russia. If it ignores Russia and if it if it antagonizes Russia, it is going to be an it, Europe is going to have to turn into a, turn into an armed military camp. And you don't want that. And 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 since the end of the Cold War, the Europeans have attempted several times. In fact, they have more or less been continuously in, and, and they have been involved in an effort to try to create one that. Brings Russia in, at least to some extent, and says, "Okay, you know, we are going to pray, We are all going to sit down and agree that this is the security framework, and this means everybody will be secure, and nobody will have to spend uh, resources on armaments, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. The Europeans were doing that in the nineteen nineties. The Europeans, the, and then Yugoslavia happened, where the United States intervened in order to make sure that the Europeans did not forget that they had to, you know, toe the American line. Um, and then, once again, in the 2000s, this was beginning to happen, and then that was interrupted by the crisis over Ukraine in 2014, and so on. And what we are seeing now, actually, is the further unfolding of that crisis. So, uh, so if if Putin were to actually get, get his aims, that would happen. But of course, we are not sure that Putin will win his aims. There are so many things that could go wrong. I mean, first of all, I would say that you know. Uh, uh, it's quite possible that you know, we are two weeks into the war. Uh, if some reports that one is hearing are true, then Putin will manage to put a relatively successful end to this in the next couple of weeks. But depending on how the Ukrainians have responded, what they have done in the meantime, there may or may not be a Ukraine. If there isn't a Ukraine again, this is going to be a huge problem because it will, you know, essentially it will take out a significant element, you know, a significant entity that would have essentially stabilized Europe by creating a federal Ukraine in which the Eastern Republics had their own position without becoming independent states, etc., cetera, et cetera. So, um, so that's, that's one element. So I would say that if, if the, uh, and, and also if you think about what would really stabilize Europe, that vision is closest to what the Russians had been demanding all along before they went into the operation, you know, military operation, etc. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, uh, so there, are, there there's Russia, there is Ukraine. We can come back to Ukraine later. Uh, there's the Europeans and then there's the Americans. There are at least four different entities involved here. Uh, the Americans are basically pursuing, like I said, a war against Russia over Ukraine. And in this war is being conducted primarily by sanctions, and in fact, as you are, uh, uh, when you called, I, I, I was just finishing a paper I'm just doing on how the sanctions are actually designed in a way that are going to backfire, they're going to boomerang on the United States, okay, um, uh, not just by increasing inflation or anything, but essentially they, they are going to accelerate the division of the world into one world that is part of the American camp using the dollar system, and another world which is part of an opposing camp led by China, supported by countries like Russia, like Cuba, like Venezuela, like Iran, etc., who will be part of another camp, and a number of other countries will have to choose. Um, so uh, that's so that, that's self-defeating in that sense. Um, the Europeans are the peculiar folks. I mean, they, uh, they their spinelessness is kind of uh, they should be in a you know sort of wonders of the world. You know how spineless can you be? Because here you are, you have been pursuing a project decade after decade, and then every time the Americans come and interrupt it, you say yes sir, yes to so three bags So we'll do everything you say now. There's the other thing, though. The funny thing is that the Europeans always appear to say, yes, you know, we'll do what you seek out after the Americans. But in the end, the real interests always come through. So that's what happened after, you know, Yugoslavia appeared to put American stamp on on Europe. But then again, the Europeans re- uh, 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 emerged and sort of started pursuing this their the independent sort of foreign policy. Again, they, they, the friend of mine uh, has just finished uh, published a book on the uh, attempts to arm Europe independently, which of course also has implications in, internationally in terms of Europe Europe's independent imperialism. But nevertheless, they were asserting their independence from uh, uh, from the Americans. So. Why the Europeans have capitulated in the way they have? Because they are only endangering their own continent, although America has fought two wars. In both the wars, the Europeans have been destroyed and the American economy has been built up. So do the Europeans get that? Like, what are they doing? I don't know. So so that's, that, to me, and, and so to me, uh, the Americans actually have three different aims here. Number one, obviously, to get more and more opportunities in however short-sighted a way for the Few sectors of their industry that that are that have an edge: uh, the military-industrial complex, fire industries, oil and gas, and the industries that rely on intellectual property rights, like big pharma, like ICT, etc. So these are the few industries in which the Americans do well. They all require the exercise of force. They all require the forcible imposition of monopolies, intellectual property rights, etc., etc. And that's what the Americans want. They, of course, the second thing they want is to inflict harm on China, Russia, etc., all the people who challenge them. And thirdly, they want to resubordinate the Europeans. And it looks as though they have succeeded, but honestly, I am not really sure. I mean, look at all the, you know the, all the oil and gas sanctions. The Americans announced with great fanfare that they're going to stop the import of Russian oil because it doesn't really, I mean, Americans hardly import any Russian oil to speak of. Right? Whereas the Europeans are totally reliant and they have said that, okay, we are going to set some distant goal for, for, for reducing our reliance, but we can't do it right now. And similarly, there are other, Deutsche Bank, for example, has not left uh, Russia. There will be lots of other such examples. The Europeans will sort of, you know, they will appear to agree, but underneath they will do what they want. Uh, And in any case, I hope that there are enough among them who realize that you cannot build security in Europe by antagonizing Russia. And Russia was not making unreasonable demands before. I mean, you know, we can debate whether Putin should have conducted his military operations or whatever you want to call them. But it is certainly true that, as I say, whatever settlement that comes out of this that has any hope for being sustainably lasting will be very close to the Russian position that So all of this could have been solved without firing a single shot. So, And this is what has been prevented by this uh, abominable logic of, again, you know, look at the way I said we come back to Ukraine last. Zelensky. So in 2014, there was this coup government put in place, Poroshenko, etc. Then in 2019, the Ukrainian people got tired of this they elected Zelensky explicitly on the promise that he would implement the Minsk Accords, that he would improve relations with Russia, etc. But before, as soon as he was elected, being as who he is, a relatively rudderless politician who basically promised what he thought the people wanted, the Americans got their fingers into him and that, that was that. Then they they so the Europeans and the Americans are doing something extremely irresponsible. That's why I say this is the fight over Ukraine. Ukraine is the body over which the fight is being conducted uh, between the West and uh, between the United States and Russia, in which the Europeans are cooperating to their own detriment. So they have the West had uh, the Americans particularly are dangling the carrot of NATO membership in front of Ukraine, while having absolutely no intention of giving NATO membership to Ukraine, right? Um, In fact, NATO, as long as uh, as Ukraine's borders are disputed, it cannot be a member of NATO under the existing Mm -hmm. rules of Ukraine. If any, any country has an ongoing conflict it cannot be a member of of NATO. So uh, so this is so how irresponsible is that? And what has Zelensky done? And then there is finally, uh, and again I I continue to read about this. So I'm going to say this in a way as uh, I find this uh, uh, interesting and also terrifying. thought. but what I'm reading is that there is no doubt that uh, you know. There are a significant number of neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Now that's neither here nor there because the neo-Nazis in practically every European country I can think of. Uh, We also now have them in Canada. We were earlier discussing about the freedom convoy and so on. We have them here too. So they are there. But in the case of Ukraine, they have been in government. And that's the key. That's a really serious matter. And now they are fighting on the street, they are leading battalions. Uh, Ukrainian military operations are seen as a, a co- joint cooperation between um, the regular forces and these neo-Nazi forces. And uh, two two things I will say about this that really alarm. me. So, you know, there's a lot of literature on fascism, and I, I don't think I mentioned, but one of the things I, I, one of the areas I write about is Indian politics. And in Indian politics, of course, the dominant reality today is Hindutva. And I'm on record as saying that I consider Hindutva to be a fascist force. Uh, Whether that leads to a full-scale Nazism depends on a lot of other things, but it is definitely a fascist force. What do I mean by that? So what I mean by that is to me, what you know, Pulanza has this distinction between different types of what he calls extraordinary bourgeois rule. So if you say that ordinary bourgeois rule is conducted by a liberal representative systems, then extraordinary forms of bourgeois rule may take a number of forms. They may take the form of a military dictatorship or another kind of dictatorship, or it will take the form of fascism. Now in this context, how is fascism different? From these other forms, it is different in one. It it has many similarities with them, but it is different in one key respect. It relies on mobilizing para-state force, like the black shirts and the brown shirts, and so on. It relies on mobilizing para-state force because the forces of the state are either either are or are seen to be by the elites inadequate in imposing order. Okay, so, uh, and, and so today you see these as of battalion type uh, uh, Svoboda, as of battalion type movements, these are uh, frightening in themselves in Ukraine. Okay, that's the first thing, and that, that it is fascist in that sense, if you take this uh, uh, definition, uh, if you think this definition has anything to worthwhile. Okay, and the second thing that's really frightening is that now Uh, Zelensky has called for, and most other people, nobody has criticized him. He has called for people from around Europe and anywhere else for that matter to come and fight there. What is he doing? He's essentially creating a European force in Europe of Mujahideen style. Now, obviously, such a force in Europe is not going to be a mujahideen force. It's not going to be Islamic, etc. What is it going to be? The most natural historical option is it's going to be neo-Nazi. It's going to be a fascist force, and that's what they are doing. It frightens. It frightens me. The very idea, if this is true, and of course, like I say, you know, we did a panel called "The Fog of War," you know, very original title. But it is true that you know when there is a war going on there is a lot of fog. We don't know a lot of things, so we will find out. But to me, this is to, seems to me a very real possibility.
4: Yeah, no, thank you for your answer. I, I definitely have been thinking a lot about that last point uh, as well. And particularly because, I mean, of course, any information is hard to come by uh, when the fog of war is, is so thick, but it does seem that many of the foreign fighters are directly training with and, and uh, joining with the, the AZA battalion. Folks and, and
0: also, uh, one forgot to one forgot to mention that right from the start, the Europe, the Ukrainian uh, authorities were made it a policy of distributing arms to all in summary. In so so that you know that can lead to some pretty problematic things because remember when you give somebody a gun, either they they can easily become freelance, You know they can go and settle their scores. You know you don't you don't like somebody they did something to you you don't like etc. You go settle your schools. The thing about giving a gun to a soldier is that the soldier is under army discipline. These people are not. We don't know what's happening in the streets of Ukraine right now.
5: So,
4: yeah, and you know, talk about uh, European participation in the Ukraine theater uh, to their own detriment. Where are these people going to go back to in five years, ten years? Yes. Just as you know, the foreign fighters who went to Syria went back to Turkmenistan and to uh, Xinjiang, China, all of these places, and. Have been causing lots of problems there. Uh, the European participation in this whole conflict just seems incredibly short sighted.
0: Uh, so, thank okay, you. I would like to actually just think one thing. You know, I, earlier I talked about the irresponsibility of Zelensky. Um, and I'd like to, and Zelensky and all the post 2014 governments in Ukraine. You know, the whole idea of integrating Ukraine into Europe. I mean, what does it actually entail? Like, what can it mean? If we can think realistically about what it means, the scenario that comes forward to me is something like this. And uh, let me preface that by by saying the following. You know, in the West, uh, throughout the world, rather, I should say, people have been shocked by the racism of the present events that, you know, refugees from Ukraine are welcome. You know, Poland was, you know, fighting off. Uh, uh, refugees from other parts of the world, but now it is opening the doors to you know these are the real refugees, and you know reporters saying, "Oh, but this is Europe, this is not Middle East, and so on." I mean, it is—it's horrific. Um, but I—I I, I think this is not the end of the racism story because consider this—you uh, know—and I also feel very strong. I also feel a little shall we say hurt when I hear various it, I'm just the Europeans were uh, sorry, the Ukrainians were interviewed on Western media, like so you know on the CBC or BBC or whatever. You know, they're always saying you're always talking about how European their cities are and how European they are and blah blah and so on. Now in this context, imagine what would, what what is the future of Ukraine in Europe? Future of Ukraine in Europe will be something like a lesser version of the future that has faced most of the uh, 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 Eastern European post-communist countries, because they essentially, what, what is the role in Europe? It is their role in Europe is, I like to say, to be a dormitory for the Western Europe for Western Europe's uh, uh, economy. So, when Western European economies need labor, labor will go from Eastern Europe to the West. When they are no longer needed, they will be sent back right so uh, this is a kind of like a holding camp for them you know that that's what they will do and 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 what is you know uh, what europe uh, ukrainians think of it you know ukrainians are encouraged to think of it as though you know oh you will get the right to travel wherever you want in europe but travel for what to take menial jobs in farms and service sector industries uh, this is your future and meanwhile the european european western european capital will arrive in europe they have already arrived White, but anyway, they arrive in your your society. They ruin your economy. They ruin your manufacturing. Any jobs that are really worth having, because they pose a competition to the West. They take over what remains of the profitable industries and uh, exploit your resources and, of course, exploit labor. And in return for all this, what will the uh, uh, what will Ukrainians get? The psychological compensation of being considered white, like? you Know maybe maybe maybe, maybe it's better to be considered black instead and have your own functioning economy, you know. So, uh, I, I just thought I'd throw that in.
3: Thanks so much, and, and
1: Monica, if you want to go next,
5: yeah. Um, so I come from one of these spineless countries. Mm-hmm. Um, I from it's your
3: government,
0: I should say, not, not countries.
5: It's no. not, as far as I can see, yes. it's actually most of us these days. Um, and this situation has had a really weird effect on us where um, the last remaining few people who didn't think NATO was the best idea in the world are disappearing. Yes, uh, Everyone is loving the EU a whole lot more. Yes. We are going to start paying what we agreed to pay to NATO. Which we, we, we had been ignoring that for many, many years, but now we are almost all of parliament, except for the far, far left wing, is like, yeah, let's give them more money. And we're gonna get probably rid of this exemption we have from participating in any EU military. So this is fun. Other Nordic countries, kind of same procedure, Finnish people overwhelmingly now in favor of NATO. I saw that. Fun times. And yeah, the thing with our Nazis coming to Ukraine is also happening, so this is fun. And kind of two questions. First of all, what is up with that? Um, Why is this happening? And second of all, what do we do about it? What should I be doing coming from this country? that is, okay, wow. That that really
0: takes me back to some very fundamental points that, uh, well, both for Europe and for the world, like, you know, in terms of, you know, what is what is a good future for the old imperialist countries, and what is a good future for anti-imperialism? Right. So, so let me just like um, that's what it ties into. So, so first of all, you said you know what's you know wh- why is all this happening? You know why is this all this neo-Nazi stuff, all this capitulation to the United States? You know, turning around decades of policy. You know, with this extra spending on the military and this. You know, what was this policy that the Germans had of not allowing arms through, uh, if they are going to conflict zones, etc., and then the Swiss overturning, like you know, hundreds of years of neutrality for what? You know, this is, this is alarming. So what? What? What is it to me? What's going on? What's happening? You know, in my classes when I teach, I always say, you know, sometimes we make like our, in my mind we don't distinguish clearly between what are the aims of running a capitalist economy and what are the aims of running a national, or shall we say for one to a wonderful better word, I mean, national is maybe not good, but a people's economy, an economy for, of the people, right, so that an economy that functions well for all people, or at least the overwhelming majority of people. So these are two quite different things, although they're constantly conflated, because of course our leaders are actually running a capitalist economy, but justifying it in terms that only makes sense if you think of a people's economy. So. Uh, uh, so, uh, of course, for after 40 years of neoliberalism, which has, of course, been softer in European countries than it has been in the Anglosphere, shall we say, uh, but nevertheless it has affected them, you know, and, and so on. So after 40 years of neoliberalism, what, one of the things that has happened is that um, the right-wing parties, the post-war right-wing parties moved to the right and they adopted neoliberalism. But instead of challenging them and moving further to the left in equal measure, the historic parties of the working class and of the left also moved to the right, right? They followed them. So you've got the Blairs and the Schroders and and every country has their own version of that. So so they, they also moved to the right. So essentially they forsook the opportunity, and in fact, the duty, the obligation they had to mobilize the discontents of neoliberalism. So the discontents of neoliberalism have been left not without without any progressive force to appeal to. And then what happens is that at least some, I, I don't say that all of them have gone over to Trump, but or people's figures like the populist figures, but a substantial number of them or enough of them will go over to that side to elect these uh, these right-wing I don't like to use the term populist because the word populist has a certain instrumental use for the other side, namely the, the establishment side, namely the Bidens, the Clinton types, you know, in your whatever whoever they are represented by in your society. So um, but anyway, these extremely right-wing forces that are uh, that are that can also rear into some versions of fascism. So now these people have ended up in a sense being the only opposition to the neoliberal establishment they are and in Trump's case of course they are also I mean in fact in Trump's case in Johnson's case they are also quite neoliberal they make promises you know about how we are going to bring jobs back and China is the problem and Boris Johnson talked about uh, what was it Uh, leveling up he was going to level up the north and so on so they had to make these promises but of course they will also they also will have to break them because the real politics you know the politics of a power that they represent, the politics of the accumulation interest they represent are directly opposed to the legitimation interest that they have exploited for legitimation purposes. So in this is the context in which, so so to me, all of this is a very long-winded way of saying that there is no left in Europe. There is no serious left in Europe. If there were a serious left, we'd be in a very different place. And what counts as the left in Europe Actually, very often. I'm not saying in all cases, but very often it essentially is a uh, is a kind of an appendage of a certain kind of corporate social liberties. You know, if you are a big corporation, you want to uh, have exploit labor of all sorts. You know, like you want to get hire women, you want to hire, you know, uh, uh, IT technologies from all over the technologies from all over the world, etc. You have to at least claim to have. A certain anti-racist, uh, feminist politics, etc. And of course, since you don't actually have them, since non-white people, women will still always be less well-paid, less promoted, less benefits, etc. Then what you do is you articulate a politics, which is kind of a politics that says, uh, "Oh, you should not denigrate. You know, you should not say certain things. You know, like you are not allowed to use certain words, and you're not allowed to say certain things, and so on." This is not solving the problems of the vast majority of non-white people and the vast majority of women. They are still where they are, you know. Just because Hillary Clinton becomes Secretary of State, don't expect me to rejoice. So Condoleezza Rice or whatever. I mean, I'm not going to rejoice because the vast majority of women, black women, they remain where they are. In fact, their condition is worse in many ways than it it has been, you know, in other times. So. So it was. So all of this then becomes like this is the establishment politics. There is an opposing politics which is only right wing. There is no left, and I'll tell you one final reason, and we can continue this conversation uh, uh, like like uh, uh, under another rubric. But the key reason I feel there is no left is because the, uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 historic left that is the left as we have it right now has essentially worshipped capital. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating, you know, if you like, I like to say that, you know, people say that they have a Marxist conception of capital, but in fact, they have a Schumpeterian conception of capital. What I mean by that is they celebrate an alleged prodigious productivity of capital, that somehow capital has created all these wonders of um, uh, 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 wondrously advanced productive forces. Let's just say in, in capital, in Marxist terms. In reality, if you look at it, actually, essentially uh, uh, in the modern era where we have seen these huge uh, strides in technology, the overwhelming majority of them have been state-supported in one form or another. So it's not actually capital that has done this, but that's how we celebrate it. We, so now once you do that, you sort of assume that the problems of constructing an economy don't need to be solved. All we have to do is look after redistribution. Now, once you assume that you don't have to, then you are not interested in the experience of the Soviet Union, of the People's Republic of China, of Cuba, of Vietnam, any other actually existing socialism that has not only built a half decent economy, sometimes a very decent economy, they have built it despite. A historic backwardness imposed upon them by, by by imperialism, and they have done it in the teeth of continuing imperialist resistance. They have done all these things and you just dismiss them. You say, okay, you know, forget them. They're not really socialist. You know, they are put in, uh, sorry, uh, 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 Stalin was a dictator, Mao was a dictator, blah, blah, and so or She is a dictator. You know what? I've been to China lots of times. Uh, and I would say and I also I think yeah anyway I I, I really see what I see there is a, a level of legitimacy that the communist party enjoys that's really amazing it is legitimate because people can see what has happened to other comparable countries who were in the same position as China back in 1949 and they see continuing increases in their standards of living etc so um i mean we can discuss that i'm not saying there are there are, to me, the biggest problem in china right now is they have to tackle inequality and i would say that uh, at least uh, the, on the face of it the party recognizes it and is uh, trying to undertake you know undertaking steps to rectify it and naturally socialism is not going to come in some sort of perfect form and that's why i say if you've already rubbished the problem of you know we say we don't have a problem of production you're not going to pay attention to these things. And so so we don't have a left that pays attention to this. We have a left that just dismisses this and then it imagines that it's going to create a socialism at some unspecified time in the future when the need is now. The capitalist economy is already failing to produce what the vast majority of people need. And not only that, it is producing things which it is allowed to produce unregulated that actually harms, whether it is Facebook or various sorts of pharmaceuticals or the entire food industry or what have you, and none of this is being questioned because we somehow feel that you know uh, there is nothing better than uh, uh, to advance the forces of production than capitalism. I mean, one could talk more, but I, for now I'll end here. But and, and Monica, I hope that answers your questions at least partly. So. <coughs>
1: Uh, professor, I, I wonder how you're doing on time because, if possible, we could do one more round—a round of questions—if you have time for it. it. Another
0: round, if you like.
1: Yeah. Great. Um, so, my another question that really burns in my mind is how this ongoing crisis uh, relates, with respect to what you're you're talking about with hegemony or the lack of that existence, or as it's been portrayed that way, uh, with respect to as you were talking about the, the two camps being established in the world and nations in, in Latin America, across Africa and across Asia and to group them together into the global South uh, and how they'll be drawn into this. So a lot has been said about Venezuela. And now it seems there is some kind of a U.S. attempt at uh, rapprochement uh, towards Venezuela in order to get access to oil, similar kind of deal with, with Iran. And another thing I think has gone a little un, unobserved is the Russian presence in, in Africa in Mali, in the Central African Republic, and how this has the potential to draw in this broader global conflict. So if you don't mind addressing that a little bit of the global uh, implications of, of the ongoing crisis.
0: Well, um, I'll only speak about what I have studied more closely because obviously there are a huge number of problems and I, one thing I haven't studied is exactly, you know, what the Russians are doing in Mali, for example, so I won't address that, okay, but uh, but basically I would say that it seems to me that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've recently seen the statistic that's been doing the Facebook rounds, so there's a little sort of picture that goes along with it, but I think the statistics behind it are very solid, therefore a majority of the countries in the world, I think about 123 or thereabouts, China is now their most important trading partner. So um, so that's one thing. And and uh, it may interest you, I, I have written a rather longish piece on uh, China in Africa, in, in the economic sense, not in any military sense or anything. But And basically, you know, the way I look at that issue, what I argue is that um, Essentially, you know, people love to say again the same. Less the time criticizing, which sides up with imperialism. Then, you know, either it says basically, you know, yes, you know, attack this dictator and that dictator and so on. Uh, or it says, you know, pox on both your houses, China is also imperialist, Russia is also imperialist, etc. Now, I would say that for a variety of historical reasons, uh, while I don't doubt that there will be uh, many uh, mistakes and problems in China's relationship with with, uh, 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 Africa, there are a number of historic reasons why I don't think China will be imperialist, or is imperialist in the same sense. I think what China has done is it has... Uh, extended, you know, and it has a long history, by the way, it's not, China is not just there as of the last two decades or anything. China has been in Africa for a very long time, from the time when China was a much poorer country than it is right now, in a solidaristic uh, framework. So uh, essentially, my view is that what China is extending to these countries are trade, technology, and financial relations that allow them to uh, 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 allow, uh, that permit them the policy autonomy to run their economies in the way they like. Now, this is something very important. China does not say, you must be socialist like us, just as America says, you should be neoliberal capitalist like us. China doesn't say that. China, and so therefore, China will have good relations with some regimes you may not approve of and others you may approve of, et cetera. But what it's doing is saying, let's in, enter into relationship of mutual benefit not economic subordination so and i would say that the vast majority of Af- uh, countries of africa and of latin america particularly have been flocking to uh, have better relations with china closer relations with china simply because they can see that this has this is a complete change complete difference from what they have been used to getting from western powers and western interests so uh, so, so that's the first point and then in this article that I wrote on, on um, Africa's economic sovereignty and monetary sovereignty and, and China, uh, I ended by saying that, of course, China has been a better partner than the West, but African countries, and that also goes for Latin American countries, countries like India, et cetera, all of these countries will be, will be better off, even better off if they treat China, not just as a, as a partner, but also as a as an example if not a model i mean china cannot be a model because china has ex, you know china has its own unique history just as all different countries have their own unique histories but to take pages out of china's book to learn how to reorganize economies in ways that they serve a broad popular interest rather than narrow elite interest etc which can happen if you are partnering with china but it is it has not been allowed to happen for decades when african and latin american countries have been partnering with the west so to me it's it's also a matter of what are the forces on the ground in these countries right unless you know so so just to to talk about india for a minute you know yesterday uh, was it only yesterday yes i i watched with in you know with increasing dismay the results of the elections in five different states including the biggest state up where the bjp after the horrors that you all saw on covid after a massive record of ill governance after this quite essentially idiotic uh, Self styled holy man who is the chief minister, when all his antics, you know, he was uh, trying to uh, market his own cures for COVID and all sorts. After all this, the BJP got back into government in UP. So that tells me that the opposition forces are not doing what they needed to do. There is a problem. Uh, uh, the left was, has not advanced there. Congress is nowhere. And the sort of, you know, there, there are three different, there's Congress, there are left forces, and then there are a small number of relatively progressive regional parties, and all of them, except, you know, the one in UP, the, uh, where the BJP's majority was reduced, this, this force, which is called the Samajwadi Party, for whatever that means to you, but they did make some advance, but it was not, it was nowhere near enough to topple the government, and that's what needed to happen. Uh, Now, I will take a bit of consolation that, you know, okay, in these states, which are really bastions of uh, uh, BJP power, BJP has retained uh, their hold, you know, there was only one state, Punjab, where another party took power out of five. So, UP and Punjab were big states, the other three were small states, so let's say, okay, it's even one and one, but it is true that... Uh, uh, since uh, uh, the present BJP government came to power in 2014, the BJP has lost one state after another. So that when it, there was a point at which I think in 2017 or 2018 it had ruled a majority of states either by itself or in coalition with some party. Today it is a small minority of states. So in that sense, uh, the uh, there has been uh, you know. The, its advance has been beaten back, but unless political forces in India organize and organize ordinary people into a serious left force, we're going nowhere. And fascism in India is already looking pretty horrible. I can't imagine how much more horrible it will be if the Modi government wins a third term. So, uh, and 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 uh, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I'll, I'll just end there. Of course, the Modi government is exploiting uh, 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 whatever anti-China attitudes there are to the hilt. So.
3: Thanks so much.
2: Um, so well, yeah, my question has to do with the well the position of the global south. So as we can see, like you know, with Ukraine and you know, like in the UN with several countries, while they condemn Russia's actions, countries in the global south, while they condemn Russia's actions, they refuse to sanction Russia. And this also includes India, also. Um, so I was wondering, and you know, like we live, or as of as of right now, we live in a very, very, uh, we live in a world where American and EU dominance isn't as stable anymore. So I was wondering, you know, what is the role for countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America? Like, what is the role for them? Because um, if you look at previous eras of like multipolar, uh, International, international affairs, like you know, the Cold War or even like pre-World War One uh, era. For the most part, countries that are not part of the that are considered the great powers usually suffer in these kind of um, multipolar times. You know, the Cold War was catastrophic for a lot of a lot of a uh, lot of states in, in Africa and, and Latin America. You know, with American interference and you know, the it was it was it was it was, quite, it was quite quite terrible. So. I was wondering, like, what makes this period different? You know, like, what can countries in the global south do? Especially, if they don't, you know, they don't uh fall to the same, the same catastrophes that came upon them in previous multipolar periods.
0: Right. So, okay. So, I I hope this answers your question. So, the way I look at it, um. Multipolarity or pluripolarity has inherently a progressive potential because it disperses power in the system. Now, of course, this progressive potential comes with responsibility. It it means that, for example, the governments of uh, all countries in the world, the more freedom of choice they have, freedom of action they have, the more policy autonomy they have, the more it is incumbent on them to make the correct policy decisions, whether it's about economic policy or foreign policy or what have you. So in that sense, with with greater freedom comes greater responsibility. And that they will have. But let me, so that's just a a beginning point. But let me just roll dial all the way back to to the 19th century, right? So you have the 19th century, you have British industrialization, Britain rules the roost, and then you get these contender industrialization of the Germanys and the Americas and the United States and so on. And that already, as I argue in, in my book, that already has made by circa 1870, the world has already become multipolar. Right, because there is not one center of power anymore. America is a center of power, Germany is a center of power, Japan is emerging. So there's all, it's already multipolar. And these are not the only three or four countries there are others as well. So and then uh, I would say that um, Because uh, in this period, uh, they still were around in different parts of the world, they were disappearing, but in different parts of the world, there were still territories with either weak states or, or or stateless or weak state territories that could be overpowered. So these small number of industrialized powers also competed for colonies and all this competition led to the First World War and that long period what, what Which I agree with maya should be called the Thirty Years Crisis, which involves, you know, from 1914 to 1945. And if you, you think about it, this is, to me, this is a crisis of imperialism. It is a crisis also of capitalism. And uh, so, and, and 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 so, what you see, one of the key things is, you know, of course, there are two world wars. There was a Great Depression in the middle, but there was also one other thing. Either side of the Great. The, uh, of the 30 years crisis, you have a major socialist revolution. The Russian Revolution in 1917, the Chinese Revolution in 1949. And these two revolutions essentially put on the, on, they, they bring onto the stage of history, socialist combined development. So earlier you had capitalist combined development of the US, Germany, et cetera. Now you have socialist combined development. And I would say that on the whole, uh, socialist combined development essentially produced a new trajectory. I mean, you know, if you think about the countries that became independent in the post-Second World War period, whether it was India or various sub-Saharan African countries and what have Caribbean, most of them looked to Russia and China as models of development. They did not necessarily look to the West because the West was far too advanced. Plus, Russia and China had built economies from, from a stage of immense backwardness. And brought them forward, etc. So, in so 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 to go back to, you know, you were discussing the Cold War. And So on, I would say that you know, in the cold war, the third world was born, right? The third world always said, you know, the third world country. You know, I always I feel very distressed these days when people think that third world means third class, that somehow it's a pejorative term. It's not at all a pejorative term. The third world was a term that the leaders of the third world gave to themselves because they said, well, there's the first capitalist world, a second communist world, and we want to make our own way ahead in our in this world by by uh, by by applying our own fara by blazing. Our own trail, and that's going to be a third way, and so on. So that was definitely the rhetoric, and certainly they wanted no part of the, of the Cold War camps and all that sort of thing. But objectively, the idea of the third world always leaned to the left, right? Because those were the relevant experiences. The Russian, the Soviet, the Chinese were the relevant experiences for the third world countries to learn from and to emulate and to try to create development, industrialization, etc, etc, in their own countries. So uh, so in that sense, I would say that, uh, 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 that uh, the existence of the communist bloc and indeed even certain amount of competition between the Soviets and the Chinese for influence in the third world actually expanded opportunities for third world countries and their ability to be autonomous, their ability to defy imperialism further so in that sense that was a good thing and then with the demise of the soviet union of course a number of countries face new challenges i mean cuba is the classic example but there were others you know where where else are you going to get uh, these trading links from now china having had a relatively successful several decades is now offering the same type of um, of of alternative uh, relationships with third world countries. And I think that's a good thing. So to me, uh, the story of socialism has always to be an anti-imperialist story because you have to overcome imperialism, Even if you were say, a, a, a relatively prosperous country in say Europe, Uh, which was trying to achieve socialism, the moment you try to do that, you will face the opposition of the imperialist countries. So in that sense, even the former imperialist world has to, you know, has to be anti-imperialist because that's the way it is. But anyway, so to me, there is a long story of socialism and anti-imperialism, which is uh, still unfolding, basically. And uh, I would say, you know, it certainly began in 1917, although if you, you can even cast it back further because, you know, capitalism was also opposed by, uh, you know, the earliest incursions of capitalism were also opposed, say, for example, by indigenous societies, which is a very live issue for us here in Canada in particular because in Canada unlike the United States, we have a higher proportion of indigenous people. And the state, in fact, rests on an alleged acknowledgement of their sovereign rights. So uh, in that sense, it, as I say, it's a very live issue. So anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of being very broad here, but I would say that so m- pluripolarity uh, is it has a very benign potential, but to exploit this potential, you have to bring to power in all these third world countries, progressive governments. And it's not going to happen overnight. You are going to have, you know, initially maybe the best you'll have is some kind of vaguely social democratic governments but at least that would be better than a neoliberal government and then you can build on it etc so feel free to come back if i didn't answer some part of your question
2: uh yeah i mean mean, you did but like well i more specifically i'm thinking of like you know like right now um like what can and of course for me the way things are going with like Russia and America, those relations are going to be almost permanently um, nuclear of conflicts. And then with China and 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 the Americans, it also seems that it's going to, it's going to transition towards being much more aggressive, much more conflict, much more conflictual. So you know, like and with sorry, the, the countries. Sorry,
0: uh, what will become more conflictual?
2: Like relations between America and China, or and America and Russia, obviously. So for me, it's like the countries in between, you know, the in yes. Africa and Latin America, you know, like, cause this is it's it's this is the same problem problem that was that was that was the Cold War, and so like for me, you know, like, what can countries in the group South do to prevent what happened in the Cold War? You know, like to to prevent being, cause again, like. Most a lot of countries in the Cold War couldn't chart, they couldn't chart at their own parts because they had to choose between the Americans or the Soviets. So, and it seems like we're, we're going back to that again. So, what can they do to prevent that from happening again?
0: Right. So, what I'm saying is that, uh, okay, so on the, uh, and, and I also remind me to get back to this whole issue of countries not criticizing Russia today. Okay, but, but I want to answer all those things. So, number one, um, Cold War countries not being able to choose. Yes, during the Cold War, some countries were taken into the American camp and they had definitely less choice, which is why you got the revolution that you did, whether it was in Guatemala or in Chile or in Iran or what have you, because these were the real constraints. As for choosing the other side, actually, that was much more in alignment with the national goals of most of the progressive post-independence governments that took power in, in the early period of the Third World, they all sought autonomous national development and that was much more compatible with what the Soviets had to offer and to a lesser extent with what the Chinese had to offer. And I say lesser extent because at that time, China was itself an extremely poor society, right? I mean, people forget that uh, back in the late 40s when India became independent and when China became, China had its revolution, China was slightly poorer on a per capita basis than India was. So this can give you an example of, you know, what China has achieved, because to me, you know, I often have students, uh, chi- students from China and they, 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 they say, oh, well, but, you know, China is not progressing fast enough. And I said, you know, don't compare China to the United States, which is what they some, somehow habitually tend to do. And compare If you want to see what China has achieved, compare China to India. What, this is a capitalist society and one is a capitalist society, and the other is a society that is at least seriously trying to build socialism, not without problems, not without pickups, not without many serious problems, but it is trying to do that it has achieved a lot more by trying. India is not even trying that, right? So that's one element. So, the, so, so, so to me, you are right. So I, I think that to some extent, I would say that um, one possibility you may want to entertain, and I'm not saying that, you know, I am absolutely right, but I want you to consider this possibility, because you are you are conjuring up the the possibility that the world is once again dividing into two, and that this is going to force all sorts of countries in the middle to choose between China and and, and 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 the US. So. Uh, and, and I would like to add here that in this scenario, it's the U.S. that is driving this. And by the way, historically, it's the U.S., even against the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union always wanted to have open economic relations with Western countries. It is Western countries that imposed all sorts of embargoes, etc., on them in order to stultify, to strangulate the revolutionary government, similarly with China. So uh, they have not chosen the autarkic path. They, the autarkic path was forced upon them. So, 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 to, 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 uh, so the U.S. is driving this division because essentially the U.S. is saying you have to do what we demand or else you are an enemy. You know, if you're not with us, you are against us. think George Bush's memorable words, right? So, um, so that's the that's one point. So you can say that increasingly the world is being divided, but you can also see this possibility that. Basically, there is one realm, the realm is of a, a neoliberal constraint in the US camp, or the possibility of, of a different type in the opposite camp, which simply says we do not agree with the American camp. It does not say, it does not specify that you must have Chinese style socialism or uh, Cuban style socialism or what have you. It does not make any prescriptions. It actually leaves a lot of room. For you to determine, according to your history, according to the balance of political forces in your country, uh, according to your needs, requirements, capacities, etc., what path of development you will follow. That's what I think is a more realistic portrayal. Although I may be portraying it in slightly rosier terms than it is, but certainly compared to what's what the US has to offer. See, the, you know the. The U.S. has historically always claimed, and, and perhaps many people in the U.S. actually believe, but probably not the policymakers, that you know what they have to offer is only benign and wonderful. But the fact is that the people who have suffered what the U.S. has inflicted on them beg to differ, and then they beg to leave the ambit of American influence. And the moment they do that, which is called a revolution, they become enemies. Cuba became an enemy. Iran became an enemy group, et cetera. So, all of these things are. uh, So, this is what, by the way, if you're interested, uh, William Appleman Williams called The Tragedy of American Diplomacy way back in the 1960s. You know, this was this very famous book, which was very popular among the anti Vietnam War demonstrators and so on and so forth. And then finally, you know, he was saying that um, India and so many other countries did not criticize. criticize uh, Russia. And I I think that, quite frankly, I think that there's a lot to be said for taking that position because if you think about it, what has caused this conflict? This conflict has been caused in large part because um, the US and the West refuse to accept what are, at the end of the day, totally legitimate demands that that the uh, Soviets have made. I mean, go, sorry, the Russians have made, going back to the end of the Soviet Union when Gorbachev was promised that NATO was not going to advance one inch to the east, right, and no sooner had the Cold War been won, and I put one in very heavy quotation marks, uh, the, the Russians, uh, so, sorry, the Americans were beginning to talk about expanding NATO. They expanded NATO repeatedly, 1999, 2000, I think four. And then again, we're at, the last entrant was actually in 2020, two years ago, right? North Macedonia became a member of NATO. So uh, NATO is constantly advancing. The Russians said, just please, basta. You know, now you cannot do this in Ukraine. And remember also that in Ukraine, it was not just that, you know, it was just any old government it was a government that the Americans had already uh, uh, foisted upon Ukraine with the explicit, uh, 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 with an explicit anti-Russian remit shall we say, um, which included these uh, Nazi forces and so on and so forth. So the Russians had much to be concerned about. Now, you may say, I was just talking to a friend this morning who lives in Hungary, and he said, you know, okay, but you know, did Putin have to go to war? Yeah, you know, you can say, did he really? And you can criticize him for that. But I said that one thing is very clear to me is that what he was demanding before all this happened is closer to what the Europeans will need to have a secure Europe, East and West. Than what the Americans are doing, so that's why I, I, I I'm I'm okay with not criticizing uh, Russia. I would rather actually spend my breath criticizing what the Americans have done because to me that's the real instigation. You know, it's a bit like you know let, let me let me use an example that I thought of, and then I was very happy to know that somebody else used it in a public speech. So I will give you give you this example. I mean, he was. This person did it better than me because he said, I'll give you a female version and a male version, but let me just give the female version and you you can make up your own male version. So imagine, you know, in in our law today, is there is a woman who has been repeatedly abused by her husband and then she ends up killing him. That is actually a big mitigating defense uh, argument. Okay uh you you recognize that there is there is a kind of constant provocation that has occurred in the in this period so whatever sentence she gets this will be taken into account so in a certain sense that's what you're looking at the americans have been rattling the cage around russia repeatedly for nearly 30 years i mean it's amazing that it took this long for something to happen in some ways so that's why i would say i'm not i'm not going to uh, uh go out of my way to criticize. I think the more important task is to criticize the the U.S. And and, and by the way, I should say that, the, in, I, you know, one other thing about globalization and all these cosmopolitan ideas is that actually the middle classes in all countries just love it, right? They, they just love to think of themselves, you know, we are global world and remember, for them it's much greater reality because as you know those of you who have studied these patterns of migration that in the past 30 40 years it has been far easier for highly qualified professional class people to emigrate and to be, become part of a global elite that travels all around the world etc than it has been for ordinary working people whether even in the rich countries so in that sense these people are kind of globally. So in India what is happening right now is that there is a globalist elite which is criticizing the government for not criticizing Russia and essentially they see the world through American eyes, let's put it that way. India in, in any case historically is one of the most pro-American countries you would find like in terms of the ordinary, well the people who are uh, reached by Pew Center calls on the phone, but anyway so.
1: I just uh, want to make.
3: Oh
1: yes, I just wanted to make a very quick note that I that example you used I heard it as well from the uh, secretary of the South African Youth Communist League when I spoke to him and asked their opinion on the subject. So even that analogy seems to be uh, a global uh, analogy that people are understanding the situation through.
0: Yeah. I'm not surprised. I mean, it just occurred spontaneously. You know, it it's sort of, it's it, it's a, it's, a, it's an analogy that works, you know, and it's going to bound to occur to you, right? So, and and the male version was simply, you know, if people are constantly needling you in a bar and then you end up throwing the first punch, then you will be told that, you know, you are at fault. But in fact, you were whatever. But anyway, yeah. Um.
4: Just before this meeting, I was uh, talking with a friend who works at Zuckerberg's Meta uh, about some recent changes that they made like yesterday, I think, to their hate speech policies uh, for users in Eastern Europe. In particular, uh, they're now allowing uh, users to advocate for violence against Putin, against Lukashenko, against Russian soldiers uh, in the context of the Ukrainian invasion. We've also seen similarly, uh, I guess, domestically here in the United States, uh, pro-Russian news outlets uh, censored or removed from American owned social media. And some European states I've heard are even discussing, criminalizing pro-Russian speech outright. So I'm wondering, even if the pluripolar shift is a progressive thing on the global scale, that distributes power across many, uh, many nations, as opposed to just concentrated in Washington, uh, might it also contribute towards a trend in the imperialist core where domestic politics are filtered by these privately owned tech companies in the direction of, as you said, more extraordinary forms of bourgeois rule?
0: You know, that's a really interesting question. I mean, um, certainly they have done, l- let me just dial back, you know, uh, to the era when Russia gave was a thing, right? You remember Russia, gave, right? So the idea was that somehow the Russians are, Creating divisions in American society, but I'm sorry, the divisions were already created by neoliberalism, further exacerbated by social media, right? Um, so, so instead of instead of uh, using uh, the victory of Trump to say, oh, maybe we should regulate the social media, people said, points the Russians. So then nobody was paying attention to what social media was doing, and social media is. You know, in the old days, we used to say that the broadcast media, like the TV, the newspapers, etc., they all corral public opinion into, into the middle, right? Come on, like sheepdog, you know, go in the middle, and because that, that's what sold papers, right? And sold advertising and so on, because big, big audiences uh, uh, sold. Now, because you have niche advertising, the whole algorithm uh, of social media is to pull apart people. And there is no doubt that they are contributing to social division in Western countries. So that's the first thing. As for Facebook, I mean, Facebook and Instagram are now going to be banned in um, in Russia, I think, right? Because uh, basically, you know, quite frankly, I don't know about you, but when I have been listening, I. I I sometimes think I must be a masochist because despite the fact that I think it is very biased, I do listen to the, and read the mainstream media like the Guardian, the CBC, the BBC, the Globe and Mail out here, etc. cetera. I, I don't read the New York Times, perhaps I should, but anyway, there's only so much one can do. But anyway, so I read the papers, right? And I listen to the radio and so on. The coverage is just so completely one-sided. And it's also, you know, back in the day, like, you know, back in the 80s, say, for example, you know, you, you still had relatively normal broadcast media, you know, so still they were becoming neoliberal, but they were not quite all the way there. And you had serious news coverage, you know, news bulletin will consist of 10 minutes or almost 10 minutes of serious news. And then at the end, there will be some human interest story, you know, you know, some somebody has given birth to quintuplets or the oldest man in the world has died or whatever it is, you know, something like that. So now, and so, you know, this was that, you know, you humanize the news a bit. Now it's all human interest. It's all about about your emotions. They're all trying to get you emotionally involved in this story. It's not news. I mean, I want news. I want to say, I want to know, you know, your reporters to find out what have been the troop movements, what have been the casualties, uh, who is fighting whom, what is happening on the ground in the streets. Are the, you know, what are these independent militias doing and blah, blah. I'm getting nothing from the media. And the number of times that uh, there is overt misreporting is enormous. Like the other day, the CBC uh, regular hourly news bulletin said, the WHO has condemned uh, Russia for attacking hospitals. Uh, And I thought, what? So I went and I looked up, you know, WHO, Russia, hospital attack, etc. And up comes the story: Reuters, straightforward news uh, site. The WHO is condemning the shelling of hospitals. It does not name anybody, right? So yes, hospitals are being shelled, but it's a separate question: who is shelling them? So. Anyway, so so, uh, so 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 to go back to, to all of this, the, the media is completely has really compromised itself. I think that if, and I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Like by the, it's more and more uncomfortable what's uh, happening, and you know how we are we can deal with such total lack of objectivity. Because even if it's the case, like all sorts of things are happening. Uh, the uh, Russians are. Uh, um, Uh, issuing statement after statement at least I want to hear what the Russian statement said you don't have to report it as the truth I just you can say the Russian foreign ministry said today blah 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 I want to hear it right it's my right to know I want to know it but they're not even allowing that Uh, in fact you can't even access Russian government websites now this is being blocked so given the level of propaganda in this part of the world, I'm not surprised that certain news media will be, uh, and, and we have also been, you know, the only reason why Sputnik and RT are here is because our news media want to make money there, not because, you know, if they, so, so anyway, uh, so all I'm trying to say is that uh, I'm not surprised that some media will have been banned uh, in, in, in the USSR because they are actually not just anti-Putin, many of them have becoming anti-Russian. You know, they are quoting uh, leaders of the Ukraine government saying, these people have no respect for culture. I mean, what are you talking about? Russia is one of the cradles of, well, like every country is a cradle of world culture. I mean, what do you mean when you say these people don't understand culture, right?
1: And uh, Monica, I don't know if, if you have a, a last question.
5: I think I probably have the least interesting questions, so I'd like to give the time to someone else.
0: You had the you had very-
3: <laughs> Monica.
1: Chris or Max did you have anything else? Any other questions?
3: Uh, no, no, I don't.
1: Max, anything? I guess I guess just as a a concluding question, maybe on on behalf of the group, I would say, what advice do you have, uh, for students broadly, in, in dealing with this? I mean, we we've talked about information, we've talked about contextualizing this historically, uh, and it seems like, you know, even we're thinking about our own campus, we're thinking about campuses throughout the West, and the the narrative is getting very very quickly becoming. Uh, this sort of like wartime narrative. Uh, I just think of as an example, like here at Cornell, uh, there is a recent proposal by students to do a university-wide uh, teach-in day, where you have every professor have to like take time out of their class to teach about what's happening. And I, I think some professors are great. I think others are not so great. And I just I wonder about how exactly this works when uh, in when. Gaza was being bombed in May of last year, if we tried to call the university to do a, a teach-in day for the entire day, uh, I think I can think maybe like one or two professors would have agreed with us. So I wonder how how this starts going with with students and what what advice you would have for students to first stay sane and then to kind of stay in the correct mindset to follow all of these events that are happening. And as our group is interested in the global perspective as well, how to keep um, contextualizing this in the situation of, of a new cold war, or of a new global conflict um, between these camps that you've been talking about. So I guess that would be our, our conclusion is is what students are able to do.
0: Well, I, I would say that um the most important thing students should do is to understand things historically. Because if you understand them historically, you will inevitably understand them critically. Because, you know what I mean, like the critical position is embedded in that history. So, uh, and that's what Marx did. I mean, Marx and Engels were nothing if they were not historical thinkers. And that's something that has gone by the wayside in our own context, where we think we are taught, particularly in the social sciences, to think ahistorically, as though every you know there is a system and it just works; it never changes. No, the system isn't constant; has been in constant evolution. So, what are the mainsprings of that change? So, if you try to understand every problem that you are looking at historically, I think you will be much the wiser and then you know like i always like to say look i I will present my views i say to my students i have very well developed views on a number of things and i can only teach you what i know and what i think i cannot teach you what i don't know what i don't think so i'm going to teach you and then it's up to you i don't give you marks for agreeing with me but i do give you marks for knowing what i'm trying to teach you right so so long as you show me that you know it, that's fine then you know i'm not the keeper of your political conscience so i think that if um if you But if you read history, I'm sure that, and if you understand things historically, you try to understand how this things, how did things come to this point? I think that would be the most important advice I would give to anybody. And then for the rest, I would simply say, you know, I mean, I, uh, we haven't even touched on my interpretations of Marx, etc. You know, how do I manage to... Uh, like, you know, in the process of writing Geopolitical Economy, I also came to understand how systematically Marx is misinterpreted. Marx and Engels, and Marxists are generally misinterpreted. So if you, uh, uh, you know, uh, and that's partly because so much Marxism has been affected by the rise of neoclassical economics and, and the other disciplines. So, so you have Marxist sociology and Marxist political science and Marxist economics. No, actually, first of all, in Marx, all of these were one. And all of these were historical, because the whole thing about economics, sociology, political science, is they're not historical. So if you learn to think historically in all these ways and, 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 and understand Marx historically, not as, as uh, somebody who is only relevant in the 19th century, but as somebody who was understanding a society in motion. You, it will be much easier for you. But yeah, but you know, particularly in a situation like this, I would say, understand the history of the present conflict. So everything. Thank else you before. so much. And, and, and once it. you understand the history, everything, uh, then it's your decision what to do.
1: Hmm. Well, thank, That's that's the best advice uh, any of us could wish for. So, uh, knowing what to do would be would be the best. Uh, conclusion of, of all. Um, but I, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to speak with us. Uh, we're going to take this and share everything we uh, learned in this conversation with the the rest of our, our membership. Um, so yeah, I just want to say thank you. Continue the incredible things that you've been writing and we'll continue following. and 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 also, I guess, a note to you know stay stay sane in this in this growingly insane world but which has been insane as you're saying historically has been quite insane but now it seems to be finally culminating um yeah. so thank you so much
0: Well, i just want to say thank you i really enjoyed talking to all of you and all of you had really excellent questions so i i think whatever it is an hour or two have just passed like that so mm. thank you very much
1: no absolutely yeah. it felt it felt okay. like 15 minutes. Um, Yes. So thank you so much. Take care.
3: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.